The scripture reading for this morning comes from Exodus chapter 21 and verses 18 through 25. You can find that on page 73 on the Black Pew Bible in front of you. When men cruel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her child come out, so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay his life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. If you will, sing with us, O church, arise. Matthew 5, we're looking at verses 38 through 42 and verses 43 through 48. We're in the, the Sermon on the Mount. We're still there. We've still got a ways to go, but we're going to finish chapter 5 today. But Jesus has made a, a, a jaw-dropping declaration in chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If your righteousness isn't greater than that of the Pharisees, you can't be a kingdom citizen. And to, to the Jews of that day, they're thinking, well, who can be more righteous than that of the most righteous people we know? Because in their view, the Pharisees were very much godly, righteous people. But the righteousness of the Pharisees was, was a, an external facade in many ways. Not, not all of them, but for the most part. They could keep some rules, many of which they came up with on their own, but they didn't have that internal righteousness that God required. See, Jesus wants both our external conduct and our internal attitudes to match his own. It's real similar to what Jesus told the rich or his disciples after he had the conversation with the rich young ruler. If you remember that conversation, the rich young man came and wanted to know what he had to do to go to heaven. And after some conversation, Jesus eventually told him to sell all his possessions that he loved dearly and give the money to the poor. Of course, the rich man wasn't willing to do that, and so he walked away sad. And so Jesus, in discussing this conversation with the disciples, he used it as a teachable moment. And he told the disciples, you know, it's hard for a rich man to enter heaven. In fact, it's, it's easier for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And his disciples, do you remember what, what their response was to Jesus? How did they respond? Do you remember? Well, who then can be saved? And what was Jesus' response? With man, this is impossible, but with God, with God, all things are possible. God is asking and requiring in the Sermon on the Mount what seems like the impossible. And in the flesh and on our own, that's exactly right. It is impossible to do. We can't be meek or we can't be merciful. We can't be pure in heart on our own. 
We can't be peacemakers. We can't rejoice when others persecute us on our own strength and our own power. We can't in and of ourselves do what God asks us to do. We can't fulfill the intent of the law on our own. So we must be born again and receive a new heart. The heart of stone must be taken out and God must miraculously give us a new heart, which we call regeneration. So if this teaching has been a bit heavy for you and you know you're not able to do what God is demanding, I want to encourage you, firstly, to repent and trust Christ's work on the cross as your own and be saved and receive the heart of flesh so you can begin to obey the Lord as He wants you to. If you're a believer and you recognize that you don't measure up, know that God is growing in you a desire and growing in you Christ-likeness. It is what we call sanctification. Little by little, what's taking place is our hearts are being changed like He is. So in our text this morning, we're in the middle of these six antitheses. These are contrasts Jesus is, is making between the religious leaders, what they believed, and what the law actually said or the law actually intended. Jesus teaching us that the righteousness of the Pharisees looks like this, but what the righteousness I require is something totally different. And we're going to look at the last two today. Look in verse 38. And if you thought the other teaching, Jesus' standards really high, wait till we get through the text today. You'll see these are very, very difficult to do. Verse 38 through 42. Let's read that together. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. As we've looked at the previous statements, he, Jesus begins, you have heard it was said, and then he'll say, but I say to you. And so he's, it's a contrast, and we're looking at the last two Today and, and as we've done before, what we're doing is we're seeing the misunderstanding and then we're going to look at the correction. So there's a misunderstanding of these, uh, these of what the, the religious leaders have heard and what the, the Jews of Jesus' day had heard. There are two statements that most folks, even if they don't know anything about the Bible, they know. And they come from this text here. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And also another statement that, that people are real familiar with is turn the other cheek. Now, we, we've heard those. People even in the world have heard those statements, but most likely they don't understand what they mean or they don't understand Jesus' meaning. Um, so let's, let's look and see if we can learn from this text. There, there, the statement, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, this is the law of retribution or retaliation. And we see this text three times in the Old Testament, the, the text that Jake read for us in Exodus 21. There's also Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 19. There's three times this text is used. And the first mistake that the religious leaders made is that they, they thought you could take this text and use it and apply it individually. But if you look up this text in the Old Testament, every time it's used, the context lets us know that this was not given to individuals but to the nation, given to th those who would judge and, and, and carry out justice and settle disputes. 
It wasn't intended for individual applications. That's the first mistake. It was given for the nations. Secondly, this law didn't give the one violator, the one that was ill-treated, an opportunity for vengeance. But actually, it limited it. We often think, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. How do we use that? You do something to me, I'm going to do it right back to you. Right? But that's not the intended meaning of the text. For example, if you in your home, or maybe if you have siblings, or if you have children at home, and they're walking around the, the counter to get something, and they bump into somebody. Bentley, what happens? Riley bumps into you, Bentley, what do you do? Now, you, as sweet as you are, you say, that's okay, sister I love. Right? What do we do? Somebody bumps into you. What happens? Well, the one that feels like they've been violated, right, what do they do? Well, they give the bump right back, but they never just give the bump right back, do they? They give the bump right back. Hey, then what do we do? We give a little more, don't we? And then what happens? What's, what's the, the second victim? What do they do? Well, they decide they want to give it back give it back a little and they're going to give back a little more and see what happens what happens you have the Hatfield and McCoys right so because and what we're not doing is we're not we're not dealing out justice what are we doing we're dealing out vengeance retribution yeah that's what that's what happens oftentimes because we're we have a sinful nature it becomes a vendetta doesn't it and we see this in the text. We see it in the Old Testament. Genesis 34. We won't turn there. Let me tell you about this story. Jacob had how many sons? How many sons did Jacob have? Twelve. How many daughters? Well, what's his daughter's name? Dinah. Dinah. Yeah. We're learning our Bible. That's awesome. Now, Jacob had a daughter named Dinah. Now, they lived among the Canaanites, and, and Dinah was violated. She was actually raped by a Canaanite named Shechem. And Dinah's brothers were, were not happy about this. And the one who uh, had raped her named Shechem, he came to the brothers and told them that he wanted to marry Dinah. Well, the brothers deceitfully told Shechem, well, we couldn't allow our sister to intermarry, uh, marry you because you're not circumcised. But what could happen is if all of you guys... If you get circumcised, then what can happen is we can intermarry. We can give you our daughters, and we can take your daughters. We can intermarry, and we can become one people. Well, the Canaanites, they thought that was a good idea, and so they had everyone circumcised. And so what the Jacob's sons did is they waited till day three when they were really good and sore and least likely to be able to defend themselves. And in particular, Levi and Simeon went to the city and struck them down, every one. And then the other brothers, the other ten, arrived and looted the city and pillaged the goods, including the Canaanite wives of the men that they had murdered. Now, what were they doing? They were dealing out a little justice. That's how they saw it. But would you say that was justice? No, that's vengeance. That's Hatfield and McCoy's. And, of course, the Lord's not happy. Jacob's not happy. In fact, Genesis 49, 5 through 7, these are Jacob's words to his sons. Semen and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their will, will, willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So 
God's not pleased when vengeance is dealt out, when revenge is sought. But it's our human nature, isn't it? It is that. Somebody does something to us, what do we do? We want to get back at them, right? Not just to deal out justice, but usually we take that a step farther. Why do we do that? Other than we're just sinful people. Yeah, let them know not to do it. I need to teach them a lesson. God has put me here to teach them. I'm the schoolmaster today. And we're going to learn a little lesson in how not to mess with me. Yeah, why else do we do that? Why do we take matters into our own hands? Yeah, you think it's fair. And we want justice. We love justice, don't we? But you know what happens? The reason we take matters in our own hands is because we don't think God is just. What's the scriptures teach us? Scripture teaches that God is just. In the end, guess what? No sin goes unpunished. But we forget that, don't we? Brother and sister, we forget that. We get the bump or somebody runs into us or hits us with something, right? Yeah, we, we forget that God is just. And we think, you know what? It would not be right for them to get away with this. And so God has given me this responsibility to make sure that justice is served. But in fact, what we're doing is we're not trusting the Lord because the Lord says, no, he's, he's, he's just. And one day all, all sin's going to be punished. You know, it's either going to be punished in the cross that, you know, for us as believers, our sin, past, present, and future, all our sin was dealt with on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, bore the wrath of the Father in our stead for us. But for those who are not in Christ, who breathe their last, lost, Scripture tells us on the, the, the day of judgment, God's justice will be served. But we forget that in the moment, don't we? We think that they're going to get away with something, so we take matters into our own hands. So this is the, this is the misunderstanding, the religious leaders. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Well, I can get back. I can take care of this myself. No, that's not what the law intended. In fact, what it, what the, yeah, mercy for me, justice. That's right, Mr. Bobby. That's right. Mercy for me, justice for you. That's right. But what's the correction? Let's look at verse 39. But I say to you, the correction, Jesus is setting them straight, isn't he? This eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, it wasn't meant for the individual to be able to get retribution or revenge. He says, do not resist the one who is evil. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And that's it. That statement comes a shocking force to those who heard it. Not only was one not to see this text, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, as a right each individual has to get justice. He's saying, no, you shouldn't do that. Then Jesus clarified what he meant by providing four one-sentence illustrations of what it means to not resist an evil person. And he, he lists those, and we're going to look at those one by one. But before we get started, a couple things. Don't resist an evil person. Well, what does this not mean? Well, it doesn't mean that this, this is not a command to let someone hurt you or your family. 
So some people say, well, don't resist an evil person. That means I can't, if someone's breaking into my home, I just I have to step back and let them have whatever they want. If they're going to harm my family, my wife, my children, I just got to step back and let them do whatever they want. That's not what this means. Some people say, well, yeah, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, um, you shouldn't resist anyone. You should have a, have a handgun, right? No, I don't think that's what this is saying. I think you can defend yourself, you can defend your family without violating Matthew 5. But when we, we, we go to defend ourselves, we don't just unarm the guy. What do we do? We unarm him and then we, right, we take it to him because we think he's got to get what he deserves. So I don't think that's what this is teaching. Secondly, I don't think it's, it's, it's saying here, especially with things that are going on today, when it says don't resist an evil person, I don't think that says we need to do away with our law enforcement. No, because what the scriptures teach us. No, they're servants of the Lord, right? So what does this mean? Let's look at these examples here. Jesus gives us specific examples. How should... How should we respond when personal injustices take place? Verse 39. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is turn the other cheek, right? And it's our, it's our natural human instinct just to retaliate, isn't it? But a believer, what Jesus is saying, has no right to retaliate. That's what he's saying. Slaps you on one cheek, what do you do? Turn the other. Romans 12, 19 through 21. Paul. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing, so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with Good. The idea is that the burning coals is you don't retaliate. You don't give him what, he, what you think he deserves, right? But you treat him rightly. And what the Lord will do will pour out heaping burning coals upon his head. So, well, that, that, that a physical thing? I, no, I don't, I don't think so. That's a, they'll be ashamed of what they've done because how well you've treated them. You say, well, who can do that? That's a pretty difficult thing Jesus is asking us to do. Who can actually do what this, this scripture teaches? Well, well, Jesus. Jesus did, right? 1 Peter chapter 2. He's our exemplar. Verse 22 and 23. Speaking of Christ, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, what did he do? Did he respond? No, he didn't, did he? He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, what would Jesus? Jesus did what we, we can't do. He did what we should do. He, as he was suffering, he trusted the Father. The Father is just. Yeah, who can turn the other cheek? That's pretty difficult for us to do. Well, Jesus did, and that's what he's calling He's calling us to do. So a believer has no right to retaliate. Also, the second statement, verse 40, he has no right to his possessions. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
It's kind of odd. Why would someone sue another for his clothing? Well, maybe because that's all he has. See, they would wear um, a tunic. And sometimes that'd be in several layers. And so it says if someone would, would sue for your tunic, what, would you, what should you do? You should give them your cloak as well. Your cloak was your outer garment, the thing that, that you wore outside. It's like a coat. And in fact, the law forbidded you to for, for, forbid people taking someone's cloak. Exodus twenty-two, verse twenty-six, twenty-seven. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it, it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So this outer cloak was real important. It kept them warm. Kept them protected. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, no, if, if someone asks for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. What is Jesus teaching us here is we have no right to our possessions. Jesus is saying, don't hold tightly to your possessions, even those things that the law would say were yours to keep. So when I ask for something, maybe you would give them the shirt off your back. Verse 41 and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Believers have no rights to their own time. Think about this. This is kind of an odd statement as well. If they um, ask you to go one mile, go with them two. Individuals in, in Israel, they were oppressed. Remember, they, this is the Roman Empire. They're oppressed by the Roman rule. And a Roman soldier could commandeer you to help them with whatever needed to be done. Think about Simon of Cyrene. Jesus carrying his cross. He's having a hard time. What do they do? Told Simon, hey, carry his cross for him. He was commandeered. And so Jesus says, if you're called to do an errand, to do something, we should do it willingly. See, Christians have no rights to their own time. A lot of cliches here that come from this text. Go the extra mile. That comes from this text, doesn't it? Be inconvenienced if need be. And that's tough for us in our Western culture because it's like this. Go, 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 go. We live fast-paced society. We have a daytimer, right? Everyone has a daytimer, a calendar, things they, they do. Go by the, the, the time schedule there. We have our own agendas. But, but we have to be interruptible, I think. We get so busy and, and so consumed with keeping the, our calendar and making sure everything's marked off our list, that we're not interruptible, but we have no rights to our own time. We should be interruptible. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Yet we have no right to our own money. The matter of loaning and giving, the Lord wants us to reject a, a tithe a tight-fisted, penny-pinching attitude that says, that's mine, I'm not going to share it. In 1 John 3, 17 through 18, we see this as well. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth.
And, and you might say, well, what, what, how does that play out in life? Because we have people who, who ask for us. And people call a lot, don't they, and solicit funds. This is the so-and-so order of whatever, and they want a pledge, a donation. I know where we lived. We lived in a third-world country, and there were beggars everywhere. I mean, you didn't go anywhere without seeing a beggar. And, um, and it's difficult to know. Well, how do you do, what do you do with that? Do you give to anybody that asks you? And do they give you, do you give to them all that they ask for? It's difficult to know how to, to live that out. I know for us, one of the things we try to teach our kids, because we were seeing beggars day in and day out, and some of them were professionals, right? They didn't do anything. They just begged. And so what we did there, just kind of a, people that were able-bodied and work because you had to couple that with you know well if they don't work they don't eat you know kind of deal and so um so what we did with our children we just we said well we will we'll give to those who who can't work for themselves so people who were handicapped or people that were disabled people who were sick we would give to those folks and then it's hard even there because sometimes that's that's um that's a scheme in itself. So it's kind of hard to know. How do, we, how do we do this? And it is difficult. There's no easy answer. I think that the thing that Jesus teaches us here is that the born-again believer needs to hold his possessions that the Lord has given him, hold them loosely, and be, be grateful to use them as Jesus did to help other people. And First Corinthians, we don't have time, but First Corinthians nine. If you're taking notes, First Corinthians nine, Paul talked about giving up his rights, how he learned to give up his rights in First Corinthians nine. We don't have time to look at that passage. You can later if you'd like. So, what's the the loving response, the right response to those who insult you, who are unjust, who take advantage of you, who have no disregard for your time or your possessions? What do we do? We we kill them with kindness, don't we? We give up our rights to what is ours, and we bless as God has blessed us. I think Jesus is teaching us here that self-sacrifice displaces retaliation. And you say, man, who can do that? Well, Jesus, and, and us, his followers, because we're empowered with the Holy Spirit. And this is otherworldly stuff here. This is very difficult teaching. It's radical, if you will. And it's not just radical that you would love and, and give and, and sacrifice, but who you should love. Let's look at verse 43. It's getting better. I don't know if it's getting better or worse. I guess it depends on how you read it, but this text, verse 43 through 48, let's read it. You have heard that it was said, this is the last and, and, and antithesis here. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what's the misunderstanding here? The misunderstanding, verse 43, uh, this wasn't in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, 18 tells us that to love our neighbor, but we're never told to hate our enemies. This was not biblical teaching. 
And, and sometimes people would say, well, I have to love my neighbor. Well, who is my neighbor? They want to know who is their neighbor so they don't know who they don't have to love, right? Remember, Jesus was asked that before. The religious leaders, they taught that it, you did have to love some, but others you didn't have to. And those that mistreat you, you don't have to love those. You can neglect those people, right? Sometimes we have what, what the world would call enemies, don't we? People that don't like us, that don't treat us rightly. A reporter was interviewing a, a man on his 100th birthday. And, and the reporter asked, what are you most proud of? Well, the birthday boy said, I don't have an enemy in the world. And the reporter thought, man, what a beautiful thought. How inspirational, the reporter said. Yep, the man added, I outlived every last one of them. The thought is you love people, but you love people that love you. You don't have to love everybody. So what's the correction? Of course, we know the correction is, don't we? Verse 44 through 47. It doesn't matter if people are good to you or not. You love people, even those who mistreat you. But you don't know what I've gone through. You don't know what they said. You don't know what they did. You're right. I don't know the suffering you've endured. That's true. But the disrespect and the mistreatment that we receive from others fails in comparison to how we've treated the Lord. And yet, how does the Lord treat us? I mean, think about it right now. You're, you're healthy enough to be here. You probably have money to pay your bills. You probably have something good in the crock pot or some plans. You're going to eat some good food this afternoon. Some of you are going on a trip this week. How many of you are going on a trip this week? Kelly, you're not going on a trip this week? Well, raise your hand. This is what I mean. Raise your hand. Lydia, you going anywhere this week? Lydia. Tell Lydia what she's doing this week. Lydia, don't know. You going on a trip this week? Oh, yeah. See, we got people going on trips, and right before school starts, I'm going to do this, I'm doing this. And some of you are going shopping this week, right? Going back to school shopping, you're going to get some new clothes or whatever. We're just so blessed. We're so blessed. Where did all that stuff, all that's gifts from God, James 1.17, right? Every good and perfect thing comes from above. Everything we have is good. You say, no, but I have a good job. I make a lot of money because I work really hard. Yeah, you work really hard. You're right. And you have a good job, but you're, somebody gave you the job. There's not very many self-made folks in this world. We get a lot of help along the way. And it's all a gift from God. But how does God treat us? He treats us rightly, doesn't he? Good. Better than we deserve. People say that a lot. How you doing? Oh, better than I deserve. And that's true. Everything above hell is a privilege. And yet we're blessed immensely. And all that comes from the Lord. And we treat them like garbage a lot of times, don't we? Yeah. Verse 46 and 47. Love your enemies, he says. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Tax collectors who are the, they're the bottom of the barrel. They were terrible people in the Jews' eyes. But they, they treated people well that, that were good to them. And Gentiles, pagans, they were good to people. They were good to their mamas and their friends and their cousins. And yeah, lost people are, treat people well who are good to them. 
but it takes a Christian to love your enemy. Look at verse 45. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, let, me, let me help you with that. That's like a purpose clause, a result clause, but it's, I, it doesn't mean that if I love my enemy, then that makes me a believer. Of course, that contradicts other, so many other texts, doesn't it? It's not a merit-based system. Salvation is a gift. So we know that can't be the meaning of the text. But I think what it means is that it, it shows that those who are his, because those who are his will, will love people. So maybe a, a better way of wording that would be show yourselves to be son, a son of the Father. I mean, God is good to the, to the evil as well as the good. The sun rises on the evil and the good. God blesses all people. We call it common grace. It's what we experience every day. Lost people, saved people, common grace. God gives grace to all. But the sons of God will imitate their father. Yeah, we'll be like our daddy, our heavenly father. Abe Lincoln, he said, let's get rid of our enemies, he said. And he follows that up with, let's make them our friends. And that's what Jesus did for us, isn't it? We were his en enemies. We were at enmity with him. Objects of his wrath, but yet he made us his friend. And that's what he commands us to do as believers. You have any enemies? You have folks that hate your guts? You have folks that you just despise? Can't stand that person because this is what they've done and this is what they've said and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Can't have that attitude and be a believer. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. No, we're Christians. We imitate our Father, and how does He treat us? Good in every way. So we must do the same. Look at verse 48. This is icing on the cake, cherry on top. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. People that treat you rightly, oh, you're good to them. Lost people do that. Pagan, wicked folks. No, it takes a Christian to love a person who mistreats them. It takes empowerment from above. It's otherworldly. And here he raises the standard again, doesn't he? We have to be perfect. This text is for all those who falsely think they can attain righteousness on their own. It, it, what it does is it, it's got the ladder, right? And people, the Pharisees, they're climbing the ladder trying to attain their own righteousness. And, and Paul says that. That's what they're doing. They're trying to attain it on their own by keeping the rules. And what he's doing here with verse 48, he's just kicking the ladder out from under them. Be perfect. For all you people trying to earn it, okay, here's for you. Just be perfect. You think you got it all together, be perfect. How's that for you? What's that mean for exactly? Hebrews 10, 14, a couple verses and we'll, we'll wrap it up. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
God has perfected those of us who are being sanctified. So those who are in Christ are perfect. What's that mean is we, are, we have God's righteousness through Christ. We have Christ's righteousness. And that's what we have to have. We have to have perfection. We need his perfect record. Well, by placing our faith and trust in him, he gives us, right, that divine exchange. He took our wrath. He gives us his righteousness. So we are perfected. This is, this is our position in Christ, isn't it? But our conduct has to grow into our position as well. Philippians 3.12. Paul says, not that I've already attained this or am already perfect. You say, well, I thought it just says I'm perfect. And Paul says I'm not. Well, if Paul's not perfect, how can I be? We're talking about his conduct, right? Positionally, he's perfect in Christ. He has Christ's righteousness. But in his actions and in everyday life, he says, I'm, I've... Not that I've already attained this or already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So what do we do? We, we press on and we work out our salvation and we're growing, aren't we? Trying to be more and more like Jesus every day in our conduct. Our position is here and our conduct has to grow into our position. Again, Philippians 1, 6, we, we say this verse often, being confident of this, that he began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of the Christ Jesus. What God started in is he's going to finish. And, and, and one day our, our heart and attitude and thinking will be like his, perfect. But in the meantime, we're, we call a work in progress. We're being sanctified little by little by little. So we're, we're perfect because we're, we've placed our faith and trust in Christ and we have his righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. We don't have it on our own. But he wants us to grow into our position. Not, because, not to earn anything in response of what he's already given us, in response of his goodness. And he helps us do that. It's not like, oh, we pull, us up, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we get her done. No, he, he constantly is helping us along the way because without that, we can't do it. How do you love your enemy? How do you turn the other cheek? How do we disarm this person Bo, how do we disarm the guy and not, after you disarm him, not give him a little to the head, you know? Because that's what it's talking about was just turn the other cheek. It's not that you can't disarm them. Someone comes to your house, defend yourself. You should. Defend your family. You should. If someone breaks into your house in the middle of the night, those people, if they're willing to break into your house, they're probably willing to hurt you. So I think you can defend yourself. But how do we disarm someone and not give them the extra? How do we not do that? The Lord, he's got to help us do that. How do we give to those who are asking, we think, mm, they're probably taking advantage of me? The Lord. When someone asks me to do this and I've got all this schedule planned out, all this stuff to do, I don't have really have time. How do I sacrifice all that my agenda and do the Lord. My boss, my coworker, my neighbor that has the stupid dog that barks all the time or has the loud music or whatever it is. How do I love them? How do I treat them rightly? How do I pray for them? How do I do all this? the Lord? 
You know, the th things he's asking is otherworldly things here. People in the world, they don't do this kind of stuff. It takes a Christian who's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Application. Firstly, you need to be perfect. How many of you are perfect in Christ? Hopefully we'll, we'll all raise our hand. You have to be perfect. You, you have to have a perfect record. If not your own, you have to have an alien record coming from Christ. You can't attain that on your own. The ladder that you're trying to climb has been kicked out from on you when, when he says, be perfect as I am perfect. You're not like God. So you need his righteousness, his perfection. And if you've never repented and trusted Christ, you've never trusted in the work he did on the, Christ, on the cross for you, if you never trusted that, yes, he did rise from the dead so I could be justified. If you've never repented and trusted Christ, then I want to encourage you to, to do that today. You need to turn from your sin. Tell the Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm sinful. I'm self-absorbed. I've, I've rebelled against you for all these years. But I don't want to do that anymore. I'm, I've realized that I, I've sinned against you, and I want to be forgiven, and I want you to forgive me, and I want to follow you all my days. Tell him something like that. Repent and believe. And receive that heart of flesh so you can begin to obey him and please him in every way. If you're a believer, I think by way of application is don't claim to have too many rights. Well, that's mine. That's mine. That's mine. Not really the attitude Jesus wants us to have if we read this text. Hold everything that he's given us, everything that he's given us, not everything that you've earned. Even though you've been faithful, I'm sure. Everything that he's given you, hold loosely. When insulted, mistreated, respond like a follower of Jesus who's been empowered by the Holy Spirit can. Thirdly, who's your enemy? Who is it that really has mistreated you that has... That when I say who's your enemy, they, that they come to your mind's eye. I want to encourage you, pray for that person. Yeah, that person may be despicable and horrible and, and of course, deserving the wrath of God. But your attitude is to be an attitude of love. And the best way for your attitude to change for that person who's been so terrible to you is to pray for that person. And it's something, this is what supernaturally happens. Let me take a break just for a second. We had a, um, we started a, a partnership 25 years ago with Pastor Niku and the, the church in Romania. And he and I developed a relationship and we corresponded. That's when, that's when internet email first began. I don't remember what year that was when everybody got started getting in the AOL, you know, and the, do the dial-up thing and make the crazy screeching sound. Well, we would email back and forth, and I got to know him, and, and we, we decided we want to partner with that church because we had some needs they could help us with. They had some needs we could help them with. And so we began to, to correspond every week. Hey, tell us your needs. We'll tell us your needs and, and vice versa. And so we began to pray for them. And then we took a trip because they were doing a construction project. It was something that we could do, and we went over, several of us in the room here, went over and helped them. And you know what was interesting is when we hit the ground and we got there, 
to Tigamorish in Romania, and we began to meet the people in that church. You know what had happened? We didn't had never met those people face to face, but when we met them, it was like we already loved those people. There was already affection for the people. You know why? Because we've been praying for them for over a year by name for their needs, and they've been praying for us. It's something when you pray for somebody, taking those needs day in and day out to the Lord. The Lord, just, he does something. And that's what happens with our enemies. We pray for, for them. Well, what do we pray? Well, whatever they need. But we, we pray for them, what happens? And sometimes they don't change. More times than not, they don't change. Their actions, their attitude, the way they care of themselves doesn't change. But God, through that, oftentimes changes our hearts towards that person where we begin to care for that person and love that person like God can love us. So if you have an enemy, begin to pray for them. And fourthly, when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, let me love your enemies. Love's the command not like. Let me read this for you. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. It's a book you, you should all read, by the way, if you haven't read that. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets when we are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a, a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. The difference between a Christian and a worldly man is not that the worldly man has only affections or likings and the Christian has only charity. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. Married people, we do this, don't we? And you may be in a tough spot in your marriage right now, and you're like, yeah, I'm, I really don't like my wife or like my husband. That happens, don't we? We go through those rough patches. But what do we do? We treat them lovingly and then what happens yeah kind of get through the rough spot a lot of times don't we same is true of, of someone who is an enemy and sometimes that may be a spouse maybe right now you had a fight coming to church will bless your soul won't it yeah you come to church by the time you get here everybody's mad crying a couple of the kids done been spanked oh yeah it's wonderful I don't know what it is about coming to church on Sundays it's hard and then, hey, throw the Lord's Supper in there. Oh, yeah. Somebody going to cuss, probably. <laughs> it's something about Lord's Supper Day, man. The devil's they really getting us on Lord's Supper Day, man. Because what do you do at the Lord's Supper? You got to make that thing right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what do we do? We, we, we treat people lovingly. People we don't like. He's not commanding us to like people. Because there's some people, their, their attitudes, their actions. You're a believer the way you think, the way you just solely, just, you know, oppose, just opposites, the way you handle life, the way you think. 
And there may be somebody that you're having to deal with on a day-to-day basis that you just can't stand. They just get on your everlasting nerve. But I want to encourage you. Scripture commands it. If you're a believer, love them. That don't mean you have loving affection towards them, but you love them. You say good things about them or you don't say anything at all. You go out of your way to love. And what happens, your heart will begin to change toward that person. They may never change. But your heart towards them will change. And you'll become more like Christ in the process. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us these these wonderful texts, this scripture, these commands that we can't do on our own. And Father, if there's anybody here that's saved, that's got an enemy, I pray that you would bring their face to their mind's eye, that they would begin to pray and begin to love as you would have them love. Father, we can only do this if you help us. We're asking you to help us, Father. There may be some conflicts in in the home. Maybe siblings are at odds with one another. Parents, maybe it's a parent and a child. Maybe it's a a coworker. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe um, somebody at, at the gym. Father, you call us to love not just our neighbor. You call us to love our enemy. You want us to love everybody. Help us to be loving people. Help us to be like you. Father, if there's lost people here, I pray that you would allow them to see their ineptness, their hopelessness without you. I pray that they would see your worth and they would desire to know you and to have a relationship with you. Father, may you grant them faith and repentance today. Father, empower your church to be the church. Father, for those who are sick, we think about Miss Betty, thankful that she got to come home. We ask you to bless her, that she would feel better. For Daniel, he's in the hospital, God, we pray for him that you would be gracious to him. For many others that are out, that are sick, pray that you would be gracious to us. Help us to meet their needs as we should. Help us hold loosely to our possessions and hold loosely to our agenda. May we be your hands and feet this week. In Jesus' name, amen.